are going to be in Luke chapters 19 and 20 today. I, I try not to say much about how prayer can go wrong. Uh, there's no good reason for us to feel nervous about praying. Like, am I saying the right thing? Am I in the right posture? We're children coming to a good and loving father asking for bread. This is the comparison Jesus made. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray to rid ourselves of anxiety, to, to use prayer to throw our burdens on to God. And we can ease ourselves into prayer and enjoy the presence of God. Um, when I talk about easing into prayer, I think of, of slowly getting into a hot jacuzzi um, that, that you know you're going into this new environment and it's going to be comfortable and it's going to relax the muscles and relieve tension. And, and it's the same thing with, to me uh, with God's presence. You will pray right if your heart is right. If you come to God with your whole heart and, and mean what you say, if you're honest to God, then your prayer will be fine. So we pray with confidence, but we also know that prayer can malfunction. And that's what we're going to learn from Jesus in our two passages today. The first is in chapter 19, verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. There's a fuller uh, story here that we find in Matthew and in John's gospel. Luke has it condensed somewhat. But we learn from this that the, the place where we pray can be spoiled. And that's what was happening. What was going on in the temple was spoiling it for people. Jesus has arrived with his disciples uh, in Jerusalem just in time for the beginning of Passover week. Uh, and he comes to the temple, God's house, and, and he is home for the holidays. When he gets to the temple, it turns out that there needs to be some spring cleaning uh, in the temple, and that's what he does. Preparing for Passover, many Jewish families play a game. It's like hide and seek. Um, so the parents will hide leaven or anything made, of le made with leaven in it. Leaven is yeast. So they'll hide maybe little pieces of bread around the house, around the, the kitchen, and the children will go look for it to make sure that they collect all the leaven that could be in the house and, and get rid of it. This is because when Passover was first instituted, God said, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So Jesus entered the 
temple precinct, and it looked more like a marketplace than a holy place. So he cleared out the leaven and, uh, and made his father's house ready for Passover. Now, every Jewish family would try to be in Jerusalem for Passover. In fact, the very last word of the Seder feast is next year in Jerusalem. And, and that's the, the hope and the longing, that next year we'll make it to Jerusalem for Passover. So some of the people in Jerusalem at that time came from you know, the, the, furthest inju- uh, the furthest boundaries of Israel. Some even came from other countries. And when they arrived, they had this foreign currency. Every year, every Jewish male was to pay a half shekel temple tax. And so lots of families waited until they were in Jerusalem. There were outposts where you could do this if you lived in the Galilee area or whatever, but they would wait till they got to Jerusalem during Passover and pay the half shekel tax. The only thing is it had to be paid in temple coinage. There were uh, Galilean uh, coins that could be used, but otherwise it, it had to be paid in temple coinage. So people would come with foreign currency and they need to exchange money. So just as a matter of convenience for our fine friends who've come here from around the world, you can make your exchange inside the temple itself in the, in the outer court. And so there were these booths set where the money changers were. There was a price for exchanging money. If you did not have the exact amount to equal a half shekel, if you had more than that, you had to pay more for them making change for you. Okay, so um, every family had to bring a lamb to sacrifice because this is the Paschal meal. So are you going to bring a lamb all the way from Egypt? The most convenient thing would be purchase a lamb when you get there. So there were lambs available in the marketplaces outside the temple, and they were relatively inexpensive. However, you'd bring that lamb to the temple, and there were inspectors who would look it over because no, uh, there could be no offering that was blemished or had any kind of defect or flaw. And if the inspectors did not pass the lamb that you brought, you're without a lamb or else, fortunately, you could purchase a lamb inside the temple court, which had already been inspected. You're paying 10 times as much for that lamb than you would pay in the marketplace, but this is a sure deal. It was a convenience for our wonderful visitors from around the world. There was a profitable business going on in the temple area. And, uh, and within the booths of Annas. Annas had been high priest. 
in Jerusalem. And he set up this arrangement and making quite a, a bit of money from it. William Barclay said, it was not simply that the buying and selling interfered with the dignity and solemnity of worship. It was that the very worship of the house of God was being used to exploit worshipers. So it's not just Jesus saying, how can you pray with all this business going on? Or, or this, this commerce here is an offense to God, an offense to worship. No, it's like a matter of justice. These these people, many of them poor, who, you know, they took a year's wages to get them there this year in Jerusalem. They're being ripped off in the house of God. And Jesus has, has a concern with that. Luke especially focuses on the justice issues of the marginalized and the oppressed. And here is one of those instances where he explodes and cleans out the temple. Now, I'm guessing, that's just a speculation, that given all the commotion Jesus is making, he's going to have to shout to be heard. It is written, my father's house. It'll be a house of prayer. He explains the, the scene that's been created here with two Old Testament passages. And um, the temple as a house of God is, is explained. How, how is the temple the house of God? This goes back to when God first told Moses, collect a contribution from the people and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God wanted his own digs in the camp of Israel. He wanted his own place where his presence was manifest. And, and once this sacred sanctuary had been set up, his glory entered it and all Israel saw that. That was now God's residence. That was his house so he could be with his people, not far away in his transcendent realm, but right here within our realm. God has always wanted this. He's always wanted this nearness to us. He's always wanted to be accessible. It's, it's so obvious here. And it's what he wants to the very end. I was reading... Revelation, maybe a week ago, and I realize God never abandoned this dream. In Revelation 21, John says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. It's like, finally, the, this, this dream from the age of Moses to the future is fulfilled. So, in, in, in the quote from Isaiah, there, 
<sighs> Jesus just happened to choose two of my favorite chapters in all of the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. And the fuller statement in Isaiah 56 is, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. I'm, I'm a foreigner. I, I'm a stranger. Uh, I'm an alien here. And God's not going to let me associate with his people, become one of them. Uh, and he also talks to the eunuch. He says, let not the eunuch say, I am a dry tree. Um, that is, I have no children. I have no uh, descendants. Um, I've, I've offered nothing to the nation. I, you know, like, you know, present a larger family, more people for God. I, I've done none of this. And God speaks to them too. And he says that both the foreigners and the eunuchs will be welcomed. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's not, it doesn't mean that we go to the temple to pray for all the people of the world. It means all the people of the world can come into this holy place and pray. Everyone welcomed. And Jesus sees those who are being welcomed being welcomed to be slaughtered, to, to be exploited to be taken advantage of. They're, they're not connecting with God. They're walking away saying, I, I think I got ripped off today. And so Jesus is driving out the traitors, and as he does this, he's recovering God's purpose for the temple. This is what God wants to be going on here. People connecting with him. Now again, in Jeremiah chapter 7, God tells Jeremiah, go stand in the gate of the temple, and as people are coming in, tell them, don't trust in lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, all of this, and, and all of this that's in it, the altar, the table of showbread, the lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Holy of Holies, the temple of the Lord, it's all God's temple as if it's some kind of magic. And, and it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter how I abuse others. Because I can come to the temple and everything's cool. And Jesus says, it doesn't, or pardon me, God says through Jeremiah, it doesn't work that way. And that if they did not clean up their act, he would abandon the temple. And, and uh, I love tracking this, uh, tracking Shiloh. When Israel came into the land, the first place where they set up the temple, and, and it's called temple. We know that they came in with a tent, and that tent existed all the way to David's time. But it would seem that at Shiloh, there was some kind of structure that was more permanent because it's referred it's referred to as the temple in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1. And we've been to Shiloh. Some of us have been to Shiloh. And the last time we were there, there was nothing there. And I'm never going back to Shiloh. 
because now there is something there. And I think that they've ruined the beauty of the place, the, the naturalness of the place. I just don't want to see it like that. Besides, they made us watch a stupid video before we, we went to see, you know, like, I, I don't like it when someone puts into my mind, you know, what things look like, because my imagination can do much better. Just, you know, give it a little bit. I almost said something I should not say <laughs> about a movie I should not mention called The Jesus Revolution. Okay, so, so Jeremiah there is there preaching. Don't, don't put your confidence in the temple. There's no magic here. He says, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, then I will let you dwell in this place. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And, and Jeremiah says, go to Shiloh. God tells him, go to Shiloh and see what I did to my house there. There, there wasn't any house there. It was gone. It was bare land. And he says, I can, I'll do the same thing here. And eventually... He did, in fact, in Jeremiah's lifetime, the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's glorious temple was gone, torn down. So the priest and the other authorities in Jesus' time had reverted to their old behavior. They blinded themselves to what they risked losing. And you know, right, right prior to Jesus cleansing the temple, he arrives in Jerusalem, he looks at it, and he weeps. And, and he says, it's a beautiful statement, he says that the day will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You have very bad timing. This is not a time to be exploiting worshipers of God and turning the house of prayer into a place of commerce and merchandise. Now, I suppose we can benefit from applying this to churches. The church should be a house of prayer. And in the New Testament, the church is not a building. Um, most of the outer churches that were planted around the world by Paul met in homes. The church was the people. He, he says, you are the temple of God. In, in one place in 1 Corinthians, he says, you or the temple of God, and you, plural. In another place, it's singular. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we come together um, as the community of believers. We are the temple of God. And God becomes the space, or we become the space that God inhabits. And anyone can join without jumping through hoops. 
You know, when, when we have our one-word prayers, we don't say, oh, and by the way, if you're not a member, you can't pray. You know, it's only a word. Well, you can't say your word. We don't do that. If we have communion, we don't say you can't take it. You know, we have rules. We have, we have fences. We have boundaries. Anyone who's here is welcome to take the bread and drink from the cup. Because it's a house of prayer for all people. We are the house of prayer. We accept. We're the ones who, who do the accepting in the name of Jesus, the welcoming in the name of God. Come and pray with us. Come and worship with us. No purchases have to be made. Nothing here is for sale. Paul in 2 Corinthians said, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. The, the Good News Bible, one of my faves, said, we are not like so many others who handle God's message as if it were cheap merchandise. Sometimes preachers can be really persuasive sales men and women. But typically, what they're selling is not worth buying. I'm not going to go into that. Karl Barth said, <laughs> according to Paul, the word of God cannot be handled in such a way. There is something where bargaining is out of the question. There, um, the word of God is not for sale, and therefore it has no need of shrewd salesmen. Therefore, it refuses price cutting and bargaining. Therefore, it has no need for middlemen. The word of God does not compare with other commodities which are being offered people on the bargain counter of life. It does not care to be sold at any price. We don't peddle the word of God. We don't make merchandise of it. All right, so much for church life then. Um, but what about our personal lives? Because... That's what we are trying to get at in, in all that Jesus says in Luke about prayer or, or his own prayers. Well, I find that it is not difficult for me to get myself out of the world so I can pray. What I find difficult is getting the world out of my head so I can pray. So I can be in a very quiet, serene place and you know, the beauty of nature but my head's not beautiful and I've, I've brought all this stuff with me Eugene Peterson just has a way doesn't he uh, with the message Bible and sometimes you know I, I'll read a passage in it and think well that sucks and, but, but, but other times I think well that's beautiful poetry right there he, he really captured the essence of it so, um, so he's a man too much like me. But I do love this. Uh, from Jeremiah 17, the message Bible says, be careful if you care about your lives not to desecrate the Sabbath by turning it into another work day, lugging stuff here and there, 
Don't use the Sabbath to do business as usual. Keep the Sabbath day holy. And one time when I was reading that passage, the year I read through the Bible in, in the message version, it occurred to me that I always lugged a bunch of stuff into my prayers. And, and if I'm in this, this holy space, if it's, if it's Sabbath, and I think every time we pray, it's Sabbath, it's Sabbath rest, it's Sabbath connection, that here it is, Sabbath, and I'm lugging a bunch of stuff in here that should not be here. I should not be preoccupied with these things. I need to be preoccupied with God. I need to be obsessed with God right now. And those things have to, have to go. I have to leave them at the door. And now when I pray, I relax, I breathe slowly, I see what's in my mind and purge it. Not just once, because it sneaks back in, especially when I'm praying you know, for people, issues in their life will, will come up and I'll start to think, what can I do about that? Especially family members. And I'll get carried away and then have to catch myself, breathe, relax, and purge my mind again. When the, when the temple was first built, it made a, well, Solomon's temple, David had arranged for there to be gatekeepers. So it makes sense today. I mean, I know that in some churches in the United States, they now have bodyguards or, you know, they have armed people outside or inside just in case. And, uh, you know, at that time, the, the gatekeepers were to keep out any Gentiles, you know, any, any person who was disqualified from being there, anyone who would do damage or create a ruckus or, or gatekeepers. And, and part of my focus in prayer is monitoring what should not come in. Having my own gatekeepers. It's like, no, this is not the time for that. I'll just quickly write myself a note so when I'm done with this, I don't forget, but then let it go. I can't let my mind lug worldly things into God's space. So that's, that's the first thing. The next one is in chapter 20, and there it's verses 45 through 40-something, 47. And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. You've, you've never known um, the joy of leaving church unless you've been in prayer meetings where people can compete to make the most fervent prayer, the loudest prayer, uh, the holiest prayer, the most poetic and eloquent prayer. And if you've ever seen that kind of competition in a prayer meeting, um, then you know what a relief it is to leave it for good. Uh, and, and here are the scribes. Okay, if, if the place where we pray can be ruined, then the way 
that we misuse prayer can spoil it. The scribes were experts in the law of Moses. They were teachers, and people would go to them with their questions, get clarification on the law and its interpretation. But Jesus is pointing out things that they were doing outside the classroom. And um, what they liked and what they loved and what they devoured and what they made. They, they liked to be respected. They liked to be acknowledged in, in public, you know, greetings in the marketplaces. You know, oh, yeah, you know, people know who I am. I'm a scribe. Um, they could be seen doing these things in the marketplace, in the synagogue, and at feasts or banquets, um, always vying for attention. And what they made, well, they made long prayers. Long prayers create a perception of deep devotion to God. And there are some people who just cannot help themselves. Okay. I can forgive Carl Bentz this one time. Carl Bentz was really close to my dad, uh, roughly my age. One of the most beautiful people you'll ever meet in your life. Um, I love this man. And one year... um, On an Israel tour, uh, Gary Arthur, who was in a band called The Way, talked Carl and I into visiting a Bible study in Veve. And he goes, Veve, I think we had to get on a train and go through Corso and somehow find our way to Veve. Because someone said, oh, you've got to go to this Bible study. Well, it wasn't a Bible study. It was a prayer meeting. And um, the man who greeted us when we finally found his home was shocked and surprised, and he spoke only French. And we spoke only bad English. So um, there were this young, this group of young people arrived, you know, roughly our age, and Gary sang a song, which I don't think they enjoyed it, but then at the end of the song, he did this thing with, you know how you can do harmonics with a guitar? Do you know that? You, you can create a harmonic sound. Of course, you would know, Bill. Um, it's like you make the strings ring without, um, without the twang that you get from a string. And so he did this really cool harmonic thing at the end. This is like several different strings. And they were, oh, you know, they, they loved that. And then the prayer meeting started lovely French language. We had flown from LAX to Geneva, found our way by train to this house, and I can't blame Carl for falling asleep to the beautiful music of their prayers. Um, But there are other people who pray in English and their prayers go so long, you're praying that the Lord will return before they finish or, you know, that, you know, they'll get laryngitis or, you know, some other blessing. Um, This is beside the point. I'm beside the point. So this is beside the point. Um, When we were leaving, 
this, this very nice man um, drove us from the prayer meeting to the train station. And as we were saying goodbye, uh, the, the three of us were standing there, and I was just the closest one to him. As we were saying goodbye, he grabbed my shoulders and kissed me on both cheeks. And I turned to look at my friends, and both of them were on the train. <laughs> He's not kissing me. <laughs> okay, so anyway. Um, Jesus saw through the, the masquerade, the disguise, the persona, the public persona, the pretense, it says here. Um, like, like stage actors, they made a show of their piety. And he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. This isn't from Matthew's gospel. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Jesus was warning his disciples, but Luke says he intended others to hear it. He knew that others were listening. He wanted to get this message to them too. And, and he, this is, I think this is important. He's not saying, don't be like them. He's saying, beware of them. Don't be like them. Beware of them. It's implicit in his warning. They're not supposed to be like this. This is not right. But the, the danger was not their example only, but in them themselves. You can't trust these kinds of people, he's saying. People who pretend to be religious when they're not, who pretend to be Christian when they're not, who pretend to be devout when they're not. I mean, usually when we talk about a pious person, we're talking about that kind of person. I mean, that's not the original meaning of pious. Pious means godly or something like that. But, but it's come to mean the person who is putting on a show of strict obedience to God, but not really there. They, Jesus is saying they work at creating a pious image, but don't trust them. Now, right before this, the scribes had come to Jesus and congratulated him for a very wise response to the Sadducees. The, the Sadducees were like the liberals of, of their time. They did not believe in spirits, uh, in resurrection from the dead. Uh, they, they were naturalistic or, or materialistic. Um, this, this life is it. And the scribes believed in resurrection and angels and rising from the dead. And so Jesus gave a very um, well-developed answer to the, Sa the Sadducees. And he had it just right there when they asked. And um, when, I, when I read that the scribes came up to him afterwards and congratulated him, that was a good answer, teacher, I'm tempted to think that an alliance is forming, perhaps. That, you know, I want to see them as being on Jesus' side. But they weren't. Their opinion of him had not changed. They were still out to, to ruin him and, and to see him crucified. And Jesus did not want his disciples or anyone else to make the mistake of seeing that as a friendly alliance between them. It wasn't. They were dangerous. Protect your prayer life. 
the, the, way I, the way I see this, and I've said this before, is there's a circle around you and Jesus. Don't let anyone else into that circle and get between you and Jesus. Don't let anyone tell you, you know, what the Lord wants from you. Hey, the Lord's got your phone number. He's got your address. He knows how to communicate with you. I mean, sometimes a trusted friend, a spiritual director, a gifted spiritual counselor can help us work out some, some tough issues. Sometimes we need to be reminded of how much Jesus loves us, of how intimate we can be with him, of how much we can trust him, and, and how he just bleeds mercy for us. You can confess anything to him. He never looks shocked. You did what? You know, I don't know if I can forgive that. I'll have to ask the father. It's never that. It's never that. He's always, your sins are forgiven. Be at peace. A long time ago, the Lord made it clear to me that I was to proclaim the gospel and not promote myself. There's a new AM radio station, K-Bright, and a, a bunch of my colleagues were getting on it and putting their Bible studies on it. You know, some of them probably shouldn't. You know, uh, but um, people are saying, why don't, why don't you get your Bible studies on K-Bright? It's a very tempting idea but it occurred to me all these other guys are doing it why does there have to be one more bible study on the air why do i have to do it i mean my ego would like it you know why do i have to publish books why do i have to get my name out there why do i have to have greetings in the marketplace the best seats in the synagogue and respect at the banquets. Why, why do I need to promote myself? So at one of our Calvary Chapel pastor's retreat, I, I stressed, I had an opportunity to speak, and I stressed, let's proclaim the gospel but not promote ourselves. And we're thinking that as we are promoting ourselves, we're proclaiming the gospel. You know, I've got a, new, a unique way of presenting the gospel. I need to get out there. People need to hear my teaching, my message. No, they don't. No, they don't. I'm not saying that these people who promote themselves are like the scribes. But some of them definitely are. And for that reason, they're dangerous because they like to control. Control is very important to them. A, what Jesus says surprises me. Watch out for those who do promote themselves. They aren't safe. They can't be trusted. All right, to summarize all of this, Another quote from the Message Bible. This is from Matthew 6. 
The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you are dealing with, and he knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply. You can pray a child's prayer. You can pray very simply. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. Amen. Or when my wife says, would you please say grace? I say, grace. (laughs) Amen. Very simple prayer. Now I want to end on a positive note. When you pray, Jesus says, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. God's transcendent. God's in, in secret. And so he's here even when we don't see him. He's here even when we don't hear him or feel him. He's here because he's in secret. And we enter that secret place in faith. Maybe try this when you pray. Begin, what am I thinking? Just take a moment to see what was just on your mind. Sometimes it's hard. It's like waking up from a dream. What was I just dreaming? But we can do this with our thoughts. What was I just thinking? And then say, I am not that thought. What is my heart feeling? Notice if there's anxiety, if there's sadness, if there's joy. And then say, I am not that emotion. And then ask, what is my body feeling? And say, I am not that sensation. You are the awareness of those things. Those things are the content of awareness, but they're not awareness itself. You are the awareness of those things. And perhaps observing and recognizing these things will help you to transcend them and enter the secret place of God's presence and there commune with him. His prayer is communion. Fellowship. Would you stand with me, please? I hope you have the best week of your life. May the Lord bless us Watch over us, shower us with his grace, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.